Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Chrissy Neen. Chrissy is the award-winning author of Affection. Her 2017 novel, An Uncertain Grace, was shortlisted for the Stella Prize, and her latest novel, Wintering, transports the reader to the southernmost parts of Tasmania and into the darkness of our soul. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I speak with an Australian writer and explore their books, writing, literary culture, as I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. The Great Conversations podcast lets me enlarge that discussion and get behind the scenes of the book, explore the pressing issues and how they relate to our world. Now, thank you to everyone who has uh, has shared the Great Conversations podcast with friends. The best way to get the word out about Great Australian Writing is to subscribe, rate, and share the podcast. If you're enjoying Great Conversations, why not share it with two friends? Maybe they're podcast lovers, maybe they're book lovers. By sharing it with them, you can increase the circle of people that love Australian writing and have a few new friends to discuss books with. Now, today on the show, we're, we're talking wintering with Chrissy Neen. Wintering takes us into the lives of Jessica and Matthew. They live a secluded life in an out-of-the-way cabin in Tasmania's south. Matthew's a local, though, in a town that knows what you had for breakfast before the coffee even gets cold, while Jessica's from the mainland and mostly keeps to herself. Life goes on, as life tends to do, until one evening Matthew fails to return home and Jessica receives a call. The police have found his car and his phone abandoned on an isolated section of road. Join me as I explore wintering in conversation with Chrissy Neen. I am Andrew Popel and I am just ecstatic to be joined on the line by Chrissy Neen. I last spoke with Chrissy on Final Draft around the release of The Adventures of Holly White and The Incredible Sex Machine. It was a few years back now. Chrissy's last novel, An Uncertain Grace, was shortlisted for the Stella Prize, and her latest novel is Wintering, and that's what we're going to be discovering today. Chrissy, welcome. I, I confessed off air how much I've loved Wintering, so this is going to be a fun chat. Oh, thanks, Andrew. Lovely to be here. Now, Wintering transports the reader down, it's, we're sort of in the southernmost parts of Tasmania, and we go into the lives of Jessica and Matthew. They live a secluded life in an out-of-the-way cabin. Matthew's a local, though, in a town that knows what you had for breakfast before the coffee even gets cold. Well, Jessica mostly keeps to herself, completing a PhD on, I forget this right, the light variation and the circadian rhythms of glowworms. That's right. Yeah. And so life goes on, as life tends to do. Until one evening, Matthew fails to return home and Jessica receives a call. The police have found his car and his phone abandoned on an isolated section of road. Now, before we get too far into the narrative, I wanted to put sort of a, a sort of an inverted commas spoiler alert. We are not going to be discussing any of the tantalizing twists of the plot that you weave through entering. However, in discussing the themes we may end up hinting at things being more than they seem. So to the listener, be warned and make sure you go and get your copy of Wintering right now. I'll forgive you if you want to pause, pause and run to the bookstore. Um, so Chrissy, this, this is a remarkable novel. And I think if fans of your work know one thing, it's that you will always produce something really innovative and unexpected. I mean, to, to jump from um, something like Holly White and the Incredible Sex Machine to Wintering is a, is a, a big difference. But what I'm really interested in is uh, this. I have this love of novels set in Tasmania, and I'm curious, what took you down to the Apple Isle for wintering? Well, look, 
I do a lot of my writing down there, actually. Um, my dad lives down there. We, uh, we went on a motorcycle trip many years ago now um, and we discovered Tasmania together, um, rode around for three weeks and within two weeks, I think, after we'd gotten back to um, Brisbane, Dad called me and said, I've bought a place and I'm moving down. Um, and I think that he fell in love with it that much during that motorcycle trip and I've been visiting him ever since and I go a couple of times a year and there's actually a, um, a poet who lives down in Southport, right down the south, Mm. of Tasmania who my dad has met and befriended and um, she loves for me to go down and stay in her shack down there so it, it actually is the setting for this book is is the shack that I write in at least once or twice a year. I saw that in your dedication so this is the shack that may or may not be in the book right? It is it's, a, it's sort of like a parallel world of the shack mm. a creepier version. I I kind of loved the shack as creepy as as it may get because it's so self-sustained and so kind of wonderful. You feel like you could go and escape and, and yeah, create a novel or create anything, create yourself. It's such a wonderful place to work from. It's right on the water. It's it's just a little um, weatherboard shack. Um, It's really open to the elements, but there's a fireplace there and so, you know, all you can do in winter is really stoke the fire and sit at the beautiful view, which just opens to the water and just watch the whales go by. It's fantastic. Mm. Now, I think most readers will know, though, that isolation in a narrative is a double-edged sword. Uh, and as the novel sort of builds in its action, I noticed really on early in the book that Jessica and Matthew's relationship could have these quite strained moments There is the isolation. There's Jessica's reliance on Matthew. He's a local. She's not. He's also, we see in the first, you know, sort of few pages, he can be a bit emotionally changeable. And and so as I was reading, it was only a few pages in, I I noticed these are sort of traits that we can come to understand under terms like gaslighting. Was was this intentional really on in the book for the reader? Or do do you think we're at a place where people can just notice these subtle warning signs in relationships? Look, I, for me, it was intentional. Like, I really wanted it to. Um, I really wanted to look at those issues of um, when somebody is in a relationship that's domestic violence, but doesn't look like that um, from the inside. Because I've known a lot of people who've lived with um, partners who are quite controlling or, or damaging and haven't realised that um, from the inside. But I, I did want. I did want to show that she's in a relationship that's not it's not all it's cracked up to be really it's um something that is is dangerous in itself. I think one of the the things that you really showed me also was that that the hardest part and I guess I guess coming at this as a man this is this is something hard that to, to sort of confront as a feature of of masculinity but this idea that the, the situation is created such that the person who's having this done to them is made to feel like they're they're not really thinking about it in the right way. Jessica Jessica is deeply in love with Matthew and she ultimately puts a lot of it back on herself. Yes. Yeah, I think that that is quite common. I think um, people who are in those kind of controlling relationships do take responsibility for the problems within the relationship mm-hmm. quite often. Um, at least the ones that I've been, you know, privy to, um, it's it's often the woman in that relationship who's kind of going, 
you know, it must be my fault, I'm doing something wrong, they're apologising for themselves the whole time. It, it just seems to be quite a common trait. Um, and I think that it's a, you know, it's a cultural thing. We see our mothers do it. We see our mothers apologise for their taking up space in the world. And that um, continues to be perpetrated from generation to generation. So it was something that was really um, at the front of my mind when I was writing this book, um, that Jessica's a very capable woman, but even though she's a very capable woman, um, she's in this relationship which has removed some of her power from her. You also, I found you infected me with what what I, I guess I came to assume is the sort of paranoia that women must walk around with every day. Um, after seeing even the, the most subtle sort of exertion of control against her, I came to be really suspicious of all the male characters and their motivations. Um, is this is this an aspect of Jessica's point of view, or was, were you also trying to create kind of an every woman's experience of the world? It's a, it's a bit of both. Um, she's a stranger in a strange town, I suppose, so um, there is an element of her not knowing the... Um, you know the ways of the local people. So there's there's an element of her not knowing how to interpret the kind of gruff pragmatism of some of the locals. Um, and so for her, she finds them frightening, even if they are not necessarily um, threatening her. Mm. And I think that that's um, that's something that I definitely feel as a, a woman, um, and particularly. Um, when I go and do my writing down in the south of Tasmania because you, you know, you're there in somebody else's world. There are people who live there full time. Um, I don't know them. I haven't made an effort to connect with them because I go down there for the isolation. And so for me, that kind of feeling of being um, an outsider, you know, I always um, get this feeling because I've got these glasses that I wear that, you know, my partner and I, and we both wear glasses, are always kind of like, oh, yes, they are the um, the city the city folk coming down and having a beer at the pub. We're always sort of looked at a bit strangely. So there's, there's an element of that, that stranger in a strange town, um, and not quite sure whether the fact that you're picked as being an other in that place um, is a dangerous thing or not, I suppose. And But it also is um, a factor of being a woman too, you know, you mm. can't. As a woman, you can't walk around at night without being aware of every single man in, you know, viewing distance and just, you know, sizing them up and working out whether it's a threat to you or not. And that's a terrible thing to have to kind of, you know, spend every second of your life judging whether you're going to be hurt by someone. And exhausting, I can imagine, you do to be constantly vigilant. Yeah, yeah, it's terrible. And it shouldn't have to happen. But unfortunately, we still live in a a society where that still does happen. Mm. I wanted also to ask about pets and the relationship that we have with animals. Um, now, as I was preparing, I read the interview you recently did with uh, with Ben Law. So I know I know that you have a cat. I have cats. I love cats. Um, throughout wintering, there is though this sort of dark tension between the human and the non-human world. Jessica, in particular, she seems to suffer at the idea of her glowworm population. We haven't sort of talked about that, but she's doing her PhD mm. in this marvelous cave system, exploring um, the life cycles of, of glowworms. And, yeah. and how they're impacted by human intervention. There's also Brutus and that sort of whole 
what happens there is it feels a little bit too raw to discuss. That was <laughs> yeah. that was a really Good affecting dogs. scene. Yeah. 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 Oh, look, I grew up with animals, and I grew up in a family that are almost well, probably I could say they do value animals more than humans. Mm. Um, so my the family that I grew up with, um, my mother rescues birds, um, and you know nurses them back to health and some of them will be caged forever because they can't fly um we i grew up with dogs um i slept in the bed with a dog as a child um i've had a really intimate relationship with animals all my life and i also see that that's kind of an important thing because you know we are so separated from the natural world that we are less aware of climate change and the impact that we are having on the environment because we are, you know, disconnected from animals and we don't see that we're causing these mass extinctions, these mass extinctions on, on lots of different levels, you know, like tiny, tiny little creatures are, um, their populations are changing and it's because of climate change and because of our impact. So I think that, um, you know, our relationship with animals is one that we need to treat with a degree of respect, really, because teaches us so much about our place in the natural world. Yeah, I was really curious with the way you explored that because in, in the one hand, on the one sense, I guess you play around with this idea. We know there's a lot in the psychological literature about individual violence towards animals and, and the really nasty connotations that can have for individual character. Um, but we are. We can be so dismissive at these large-scale um, climatic or even um, sort of at a at a forest level events that would cause untold deaths of, of animals. Um, can you talk a little bit? I mean, I know that we're, we're sort of getting very close to uh, the mystery of, of wintering, but can you talk a little bit about how that plays into the particular environment of Tasmania? Because you do get deep into the forest on several occasions and you have characters that have a long history going back to the logging days um, yeah. of, of that area. Yeah, I think um, Tasmania is a really great example of where um, we can really see our impact um, really clearly on the natural world. Um, we are still, you know, logging great areas of Tasmania and yet it's, you know, the, the main kind of resource and the main richness of the area is its kind of nature and the animal life there. Um, it's it's a, a place where those battles, um, are still playing out between the people who want to conserve what we have, the natural world, and those that just treat it as a, a resource for us to kind of log or cut or um, sell off for, you know, pulp. So I think that that, um, that space is a, an area um, where I do kind of see that very clearly. But it's also an area that when I'm down in the south of Tasmania, I get this incredible sense that we don't belong there. Whenever I'm down there, I feel like the forest is closing ranks against us. There are areas of Tasmania that I go to where, you know, um, I'll be driving through the road that goes through really heavily forest um, acreage and you can just see the bars on your mobile phone going down to zero. Um, then, then you know, you see that SOS-only sign on your phone which really reminds you that... Um, you, that you might need an emergency call at any moment and that's all you can do from down there. And then it goes completely, you know, because because the forest has closed in around you. There is no way that any kind of a phone signal could get down there. And those are the areas that I feel 
we are the invaders when we're mm. down there. It doesn't feel like we should be in those spaces. Those spaces feel like wild and natural places. Mm. And I always think about the um, the traditional owners of that land and um, the fact that they would know the places to avoid and they would know the places where they're welcome. But because we, you know, invaded so brutally and so cruelly into that area, um, you know, as non-Aboriginal people, we are not wanted. And um, it's really clear, you know, that we're kind of, we're in a battle mm-hmm. with the natural world. So I think, you know, I was really trying to kind of grapple with those ideas um, when I was writing this book. And, yeah, so nature versus um, human is, is quite a, a strong theme. That is such a remarkable horror movie scene you've also described descending into the into the forest and I could almost imagine the visual of the bars disappearing on the phone to kind of a descending cord and it it's yeah. it, it sounds like when you describe it it sounds like it should be ridiculous but that really is something of of for a, for a cosmopolitan Australian that's something of a horror story and then to be in a space where we feel we are intruding but then this sense that there are that there's something to intrude on. I mean, in, in Tasmania, we have the, the sort of the ongoing, the coming and going appearances of the thylacine, you know, the, the, the Tasmanian tiger that I, you know, we, we can't quite yeah. come to grips with its extinction. I am... Um, I mentioned before that I've, I've fallen in love with Tasmanian novels and I'm obsessed with them this year. Another one that I really loved was um, Robbie Arnott's Flames, which is also from Text Publishing. And both of you touch into the natural the world, but also that there's a mystery and there is a presence there beyond beyond what we understand. Do you, do yeah, you have a sense of your yeah, books? Yeah, I read Robbie's book and I, I saw all those kind of parallels. And thought, oh, look, we're kind of thinking in the same way, really, that um, it's a, it's kind of a space where... You feel like um, you feel like the other paranormal kind of mysterious myths legends can just slip into those kind of very forested areas and hide there. It feels a little bit like you're getting past, you know, the the science and the civilization that we've come to kind of rely on as this safe space, and you kind of enter this world where. Um, science is meaningless because it's so thickly forested. It's so much a natural world that resists um, the science. So you know, for me, it's for me, science is um, is a, a really amazing way of explaining the world. And uh, that idea that anything that is now science was once considered magic um, is. You know that that was foremost in my mind when I was writing this book. This kind of line that anything that you don't understand slips into the world of myth and magic, um, and I wanted to kind of play with the idea that um, this, this book exists on that very defined line between where science end, ends and magic begins. So um, wintering really is about what happens when you kind of reach that edge and um, you tip into a world where you can't explain what's happening and um, your mind just reaches for those kind of basic kind of myths and legends and and ideas of magic and the other. Mm, a, a very spoilery question just occurred to me that I might save mm. till we're off air um, <laughs> because I, I wanted to explore also the, the individual and the relationship to community and I hadn't considered also the sense of the broader environmental community 
that um, we've just been discussing, but very much in, in wintering, we have um, this this community that I think cosmopolitan readers can't fully appreciate. That's these support networks that can so quickly become stifling. There's the group of women that yeah. come to Jessica's aid after Matthew's disappearance. That uh, uh, as much a curse as a blessing. Did this reflect your your own experiences of community? You've talked about your time in Tasmania. What yeah. what, what were you exploring here? I, I really love the women that are um, central to this book, the, the group of local women who all believe um, their partners are all, have all disappeared just as Jessica's partner disappears. And um, they believe that something supernatural has happened to their partners and they want to convince Jessica to join them in their kind of crazy beliefs. And for me, um, those women, um, you know, they're just as... They're, they're just so capable. They... Um, you know, they they cut their own wood, they um, you know, tend to their own property, they fish from the ocean, they are incredibly capable women and yet um, here they are kind of having these beliefs which we could consider crazy really. And um, I, I love the idea that, um, that these women are so self-reliant and in a way they've got their, their feet deeply rooted in that land, even though they are, you know, they're not Aboriginal women, they're, they're um, Western women, they have learnt that land and they have kind of wedded their lives to it so carefully that, um, you know, they almost survive against the odds in a land that's quite harsh to their needs. And so I, I love that kind of, that line where they're incredibly capable um, and yet they create their own logic within that space that kind of gets twisted and turned and becomes something that seems unrecognisable from the outside. They have their own internal logic, those women. And Jessica kind of, you know, she's just pushed into their company and um, she struggles with their ideas because, you know, she's from somewhere else and she's not from there. So, yeah, I think that they're, they're a vital part of the book and they were the most fun that I had writing the book, I think, was writing those women because um, that, you know, I know some women like that. I know mm. women who are um, a little bit crazy, but who are incredibly um, good at surviving and, you know, finding their own community within that. And I think we all know people like that who can kind of find that incredible sense of of um, strange otherworldliness and yet survival at the same time. Do you do you think? The resilience and the the unique perspective are inextricably entwined. Like, do you think something about viewing the world in that way has helped them become resilient and to survive? Well, I think that that distrust of the world that they have, the distrust of what everybody else says is right, um, is a part of that survivalist kind of um, way of living. You know, you can't if if you just kind of give in and just um, trust you know, the authorities or trust yeah. the government and trust the um, the scientists. You're kind of giving away some of your power in a way because you're actually um, just uh, relaxing into letting other people make those decisions for you. Yeah. But um, these women, uh, they, they insist that their views are the, the right way to see the world, even though it doesn't kind of fit the norm. And they're staunch in kind of sticking by their views despite you know, anyone else who might think that they're crazy. And so there's something, 
there's something incredibly resilient about sticking to your guns and believing what you believe. Mm. You know, it also leads to um, a lot of trouble because, you know, you, you kind of need, you need a balance between um, distrust and trust. Otherwise, you can't exist in the world. But, um, you know, there is, there has to be a level of critical thinking, I suppose, and distrust of what other people um, say is truth. Um, I, I don't know. It's just, there's, there's something about that that kind of allows a flexibility and allows um, a survival when other people may not, other people might think because they're just solely relying on others to make the decisions for them. Yeah. There's something maybe... So, you know. Yeah. I thought something, maybe there's something novelistic about it too, the way we, for a period when we read, we dive into a world and we we immerse ourselves in it no matter what the circumstances of it are and, and how would that look if you if you writ that large across your entire life and, and allowed the circumstances of, of a different sort of story to to be your world. Yeah, that's true. And I also think, um, you know, sometimes we get stuck in this, this way that we um, we believe something is right, we have this one vision of the world and so therefore everything sort of slots in place mm. with this vision of the world. But if you kind of look at it from a different cultural perspective, for instance, you know, you, you kind of go to a different country with a very, very different cultural perspective, mm. um, your way of looking at the world suddenly seems crazy and things that you would think are crazy are suddenly the norm and their way of looking at the world. And, uh, you know, it's not that one is right or one is wrong. It's just that as a community we have agreed on ways of looking at the world Mm -hmm. and that you've just slipped into a community you don't understand and suddenly it seems crazy, Mm -hmm. but it's a way of interpreting the world that is just unfamiliar to you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like if you kind of... If you um, look from the perspective of an ant, you will see the world in one way. And if you look from a perspective of a monkey, you'll see the world in a different way. And if you look from the perspective of a human, you'll see it in a different way too. So, you know, it it really depends on where you sit in that ecosystem and mm. to how you're going to see the world. And we are discussing this this plurality of perspective in relation to Chrissy Neen's wintering. I'm joined by Chrissy right now. We are, we've been discussing just so much about the book and yet so little um, about the mystery. I, I want everyone to go out and discover this, Chrissy. And you're, you're going to be up in uh, Sydney in a couple of weeks, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm going to be at Better Red Than Dead, um, hanging out with Benjamin Law, the on, wonderful Benjamin Law. On October um, 5th, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So um, it's it's going to be fun. Um, Benjamin and I, and I go a long way back, um, and it'll be really great fun chatting to him there. I'm going to encourage everyone to get along with that because I know, well, Chrissy, I, I, we've just had a chat. I know what a great conversationalist you are. Ben is also an amazing conversationalist, so that's going to be a fabulous evening. Thank you so much for coming uh, and discussing wintering on Final Draft. <laughs> no worries, Andrew. Thanks for that. That's it for this great conversation with Chrissy Neen. Chrissy's new novel, Wintering, is out now through text publishing. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you're enjoying Great Conversations from Final Draft, hit subscribe in iTunes or wherever you're getting your podcasts, and uh, you'll receive a new episode delivered straight to your phone every week. 
Don't forget to share the podcast with uh, with friends. And if you're enjoying it, please rate us. Help others discover this world of Australian literature. If you want to keep up with the latest books, writing and literary culture, why not follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook? Just look for at Final Draft 2 ser My name is Andrew Popel. I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft.